Welcome to the first of our Christmas special episodes. We'll be looking forward to Christmas and talking all things food and drink and how to get the best out of the Christmas celebrations. On this episode, I speak to Andrew McDuff of McDuff Butchers, which opened earlier this year in Bonnie and Wild at the St James's Quarter in Edinburgh. I then spoke to Jenny White, volunteer coordinator, and Ewan Matheson, volunteer head chef at Crisis, which is a charity that helps homeless people all year round. And this Christmas, we'll be feeding more than 300 people in Edinburgh alone. Next up, I was looking for some recommendations around sustainable wine to try this year. I spoke to Bruce Jack of Bruce Jack Wines from his vineyard in South Africa. Finally on this episode, you'll hear from Evan Sampson and Kevin Usher at Dumfries House, who gave me some great tips and insights on how to prepare for hosting this Christmas and how to make your table look perfect. First up, I had to chat with Andrew McDuff about his long-running family business and what the run-up to Christmas means for them. Bonnie and Wild outside McDuff Butchers with Andrew McDuff. Hi Andrew, how are you? Hi Roz, yeah, very well, thanks very much. So it's almost Christmas, which must be a really busy time for you, um, but could you just tell us a little bit about the shop and the butchers, and you, you're pretty well established in Edinburgh, is that right? Yeah, well, we're, we're recently established. Uh, we launched here in Bonnie and Wild on July 15th, and we're originally a wholesale business, actually, so that business is based out in Wishaw and has been going since 1890 originally starting with my great-grandfather who actually used to import live cattle from the Chicago meat markets when there was a lack of fresh meat in the UK and he actually travelled across with the animals. We, we have a docket for cattle feed up in our office for the Concordia vessel from uh, 1898 uh, and that's a, a bit of history and we're all about we're a family business. But as you say, Christmas, it's our busiest time of year. We're really getting our head around what to get orders-wise, whether that be turkeys, rib roast, wing ribs, chickens. We've got some amazing producing because as a wholesale business, my main passion is finding the best of Scotland, whether that be seaweed-fed sheep from the island of North Ronaldsey up in Orkney, Shetland lambs direct from Shetland, just to name a few, Dexter cattle, White Park cattle, some of the oldest breed cattle in the world. That's what really sort of ticks our boxes in regards to provenance, traceability, where it's from, and showing you that in the counter. Every ticket shows exactly where it's from, the kill date, what breed it is, etc. You mentioned the counter, and we're standing kind of in front of it, and just to describe it, you've got a lot of kind of large cuts of meat hanging from hooks in a big fridge, and then at the front where people would stand, there's like smaller cuts and maybe what people might recognise, I can see oxtail and like some steaks and stuff, but what makes your all this kind of different from what people might see in a butcher's these days? Because personally, I look at all those cuts of meat thinking, wow, I've not seen anything like that. It's not outside, it's not in a restaurant, basically. Yeah, sure. So I used to live in London. So I lived in London for, for four years back between sort of 2010 and 2014. And we supply through the wholesale business a lot of amazing shops down there. And I've travelled the world and I generally try, I've got two kids and a wife and I generally try and tie in family trips with all, we're always going to see a butcher, whether that be in Stockholm, Copenhagen, America. So I've always come back to my hometown, Edinburgh, which is where I was born and wanted to have a retail presence within Edinburgh. So I sort of took all those ideas 
and with the owner Bonnie and Wild, we helped design the shop. So we've got an amazing Himalayan salt age aging chamber, which is the big cabinet that you just that you mentioned, and the Himalayan salt blocks really help draw out the moisture in that dry aging process. So a lot of people might think when they walk by, oh that that's dark meat, it doesn't look right because in supermarkets a lot of people see bright red meat. Uh, but actually what that is doing, that's the dry aging process, it's completely normal. We, we face off that bit of meat when we're cutting the steak or we're cutting the roast. Uh, and what that is doing is it's removing the, the water, it's breaking down the enzymes and it's just adding to the flavour. And some of the stuff in here we've, we've pushed up to for a guy called Keith Cooks. We did a 90 day aged Aberdeen Angus rib roast from the tailors and he hands down said it was the best piece of meat he's ever had. So that's really our piesta de resistance and we've also got pork dry aging in there, not a lot of people dry age pork. We get some amazing saddleback pork from Ballincree Farm just north of North Berwick. Uh, we get pure Berkshires in which the Japanese know as uh, Kuribato because I believe a Japanese prince or king back in the 19th century would only eat Berkshire pork. Uh, and so there's a lot of Berkshire pigs actually out in Japan these days and it's seen as the Wagyu of pig. We also get RSPCA assured uh, Hampshire pigs in from a farm called Scott Maxwell and we love to dry age stuff and sort of push boundaries. One of my favourite things is I love Edinburgh Butter and the Edinburgh Butter Company. So what we started to do and you can see in the bottom of our fridge is butter aged beef. So we age, whether it be ribeye, sirloin or fillet, uh, on the bone for four weeks. We then fleece it out and encase the entire thing in Edinburgh butter. And being a cultured butter, what that does is it just captures the flavor and we age it for another four weeks. And then you just slice it, have the butter and the steak in the pan and cook it in the butter and it's just a flavor explosion. Mo moving on to our sort of main display cabinet, there's sort of smaller cuts as you say, whether that be ox cheek, mints, burgers, uh, we've got some Wagyu ribeye in there from Highland Wagyu up in Persia. That's F1 grade, so that's 50% Wagyu, 50% Aberdeen Angus, which is more accustomed to, to the UK taste buds. That's purely because in Japan, the full blood Wagyu is actually very thinly sliced usually and used as an accompaniment to rice or broth. Whereas in the UK, we like a steak, but if you were to eat a whole steak of full blood Wagyu, you, you probably feel pretty sick because of how rich it is. Uh, we also have the only, I, I pride myself on the best of Scotland, but we do import one item which is Galician beef. Now Galician beef is 12 to 14 year old retired ex-dairy Spanish cattle and it's just an incredible flavour. Uh, if you ever get the chance to watch Steak Revolution on Netflix, uh, that was a, a man's mission, a producer, Franck Ribiere, trying to find the best beef in the world. And the Galician beef really took a claim to fame after that show uh, and is now used in popular restaurants across England and Scotland. And it's honestly, I thought it would be chewy, but dry aged and just incredible marbling and it's got a beautiful flavour to it. And then we also do very quick bites. So we've got Sam, Ryan and Hannah. They're our butchery team here. So Sam's the leader and then Hannah and Ryan under him and they love getting creative and I just give them free reign on creativity. So Ryan makes some amazing beef truffles which are easy just in the oven, 25 minutes, 180 degrees and cooked. 
uh, and there's lots of other uh, products that are very easy just to pop in the oven for a quick 25 minutes uh, and there, there's your dinner. Nice. So with Christmas coming up, you said it's a busy time, do you sort of foresee people buying mainly turkey or do people come in and get steak? Or, you know, what's the sort of what are people eating over Christmas, do you think? It's a huge range to be fair, obviously I'm sure a lot of people have heard in the media and press recently about uh, CO2 shortages, personnel staffing shortages within the turkey industry and a real fear that there's not going to be a lot of turkeys available over Christmas. Uh, but we work with local producers, so we work with Charlotte Blackler who uh, runs Her Majesty up near Glen Eagles uh, and she produces amazing herb and pasture raised bronze turkeys uh, and they're available to order now in the shop and we've got a good few orders of them in already but there are still some available. Um, we also work with Pasture Poultry, a lady called Katie near Bigger and she does pasture, there are pasture fed chickens so again these aren't getting any intensive feeds they're out on the grass and just eating out on the grass eating herbal lays etc. Um, then you have three bird roasts are very popular over Christmas and then obviously the rib roast so we've as I've mentioned our Himalayan salt ager if someone wants to come in select hand pick a rib roast put their name on it, buy it there and then, and we'll age it up to Christmas for you, or even further for New Year. And you can come back, we'll, we'll trim it and bone it out to spec, do a French trim rib or however they want it. So they are popular as well. They're the, I would say they're the main things that, that we sell over Christmas. And then coming into obviously New Year, then you, you've got to think about the, the steak pie. I was going to ask about this, so what, what is it about Scotland's New Year's Day and steak pie? Well, I have to hold my hands up here firstly and say I'm a Scotsman through and through, but I'm not actually a steak pie eater at New Year. My, my tradition, family tradition, has always been to do a beef fondue. So that's uh, these boiling pans of oil. You can get a decut rump and have that cut up into tiny small chunks of beef. Or if you're feeling really luxurious, you can get fillet steak or pope side fillet have that trimmed up and put that in and you cook it with uh, dauphinoise potatoes or chips and vegetables and that's always been my tradition so I had to do a bit of research into it and it seems like in my mind it's because us Scots love a party and either it's to line your stomach before Hogmanay or it's because you're a bit weary and hungover on the first and it's just a very easy meal to pop in the oven though going dating really far back it seems like People actually worked on the 1st of January and therefore it was just a very quick and easy meal to be bought to put in the oven because they were too busy and, and obviously from the night before that and they're actually working. Which I find intriguing because these days I've lived and worked in England and they only get one day, they get January the 1st, whereas up here we now get two days. And the steak pie was supposedly originally the home sort of home delivery ready meal as such and now that tradition has just continued across all butchers it's just it's a fantastic product you can use lots of shoulder cuts in there whether that be chuck roll feather blade you could use brisket if you're being a bit unusual with it potentially lmc maybe shin there's lots of different cuts that can be diced up for a steak pie sadly here we're, we're a raw site but we are a work in progress in regards to trying to collaborate with someone to, to bring steak pies to our shop for new year but if people are making them then we have the best meat in the country to, to come and get your meat for making your steak pies hi so you've told us what you have in new year what are you having on christmas day christmas day i will well my wife is from kent 
so I'll be having a turkey sourced from Hayward's Butchers in Kent because that's local to me. But if I was up here, my, my sister's buying a, a her Madge turkey. For, for me, it's turkey, all the trimmings, bread sauce essential with some beautiful glasses of wine. Yeah, that, that's what it's all about. Round a big table, family all together, absolute chaos and lying on the couch stuffed uh, for about two hours having probably a nap afterwards. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's been great to see all the meat cuts and find out a bit more about yourself and your work. No problem at all. So the people of Edinburgh and further afield were, were open seven days a week, Monday through to Sunday. I believe we're the only butcher shop open uh, in Edinburgh on a Sunday and seven days a week. So please come check us out. We're in a bit of an unusual location being inside the St. James's Quarter, but if you haven't been to Bonnie and Wild, it's, it's a fantastic place uh, and we'd love to see you and help you out with anything to do with Christmas or thinking further fueled into the new year. Thank you very much, thank you. Crisis is a national charity that works with homeless people. I met Jenny and Ewan in their Edinburgh offices to hear how they're giving up their Christmas day to support those in need. So today I'm at Crisis speaking to Jenny White. Hi Jenny. Hi there. How are you? I'm good, yeah. So we're leading up to Christmas, it'll be mm -hmm. here before we know it. Could you just tell us a bit about what it is you do for over Christmas time? Yeah, absolutely. So Crisis is the national charity for people experiencing homelessness. So over Christmas, quite a lot of the people that we work with, they're potentially in really unsuitable accommodation, don't have access to catering facilities, and they've maybe moved around a lot, don't have a lot of kind of stuff. So over Christmas, we are doing a hot food offer on the 25th and 26th of December. Um, and we're also sending out gifts to people. Our volunteers are delivering gifts to people all through December of both kind of gifty items like books and candles and pajamas and essentials so toiletries things like that as well we're making calls to everybody that we work with to kind of check that they are in contact with someone over Christmas we're doing four little in-person events which is really exciting because we couldn't do that last year so um, and what, what is your job role with it all so I'm the volunteer coordinator so this year we're recruiting about 200 volunteers to kind of deliver all of our Christmas offer back in the kind of old days of this kind of central model we used to have about 450 people supporting us so busy time of year for me. <laughs> um, and how did you get into it? So I used to work with volunteers in another organisation. I used to work in information and advice and I, I ran a helpline and had a little team of volunteers. I've been in the voluntary sector about 10 years. Volunteering just, there's something really lovely about kind of working with people that are giving up their time to support you. It's just like people say, oh, you're a bit like a recruitment consultant. And it's like, no, but it's not. It's not like a bum on a seat for a fee. It's like, I say it's more like match.com. It's like levels of compatibility, like <laughs> building a relationship <laughs> and it must be really rewarding as well like the kind of work that especially Christmas time you think you know if people don't normally give to charity that's the time when they kind of think oh I should. yeah absolutely loads of people get in touch with us over Christmas wanting to give us like stuff that they've like won in a raffle or you know wanting to volunteer right up to kind of Christmas Eve we get people saying kind of volunteer um, and obviously we've got like admin and you know we can't do that usually we're full by the end of November anyway but it's just it's so nice that people are kind of thinking of other people and I think Christmas just makes you think about sort of what you have which makes you more kind of aware of what people don't have um, and especially homelessness like and during the pandemic people being kind of stuck in their home and like oh this is awful but I think a lot of people were thinking actually how much more awful would that be if I didn't even have a home, if I was kind of, you know, stuck rough sleeping or in a bed and breakfast or in one of these hotels um, just by myself. So, yeah, it's, um, it is. It's really lovely. It's really inspiring to see um, how passionate people are about 
what we do at Christmas. It's lovely. And we've got a little kind of, well, a little, <laughs> all 200 of us. We've got a Christmas family now, I think. You know, there's returners that just do it year after year and it's just, it's nice. Lovely thing to be part of. And if people wanted to donate things, either items or money, or what, what would you suggest is the best thing for people to do to help for this Christmas? We still have a wish list which is open, which is on our website. If you go to our website and there's a kind of Edinburgh Christmas kind of bit, and then that's got a list of all the essentials that we need and all the kind of gifty things. And as we're talking to our members, we kind of build up if there's like special requests we've got, things like um, last year someone wanted a particular book in Polish, so it was like, right, okay, we need to stick that on the wish list, see if we can get that. Yeah, if you have a look on the website and the donation link is there as well well and a lot of people are really specific about their money staying in Scotland but there is a little drop down box that you can say I want my money to stay in Scotland because obviously we're a GB organisation but yeah people can do that quite easily via the website. You know obviously very busy time you've got a lot of you said a lot of volunteers your Christmas family what do the logistics look like in terms of the lead up to Christmas and on Christmas? Yeah so we start well Christmas never really goes away for me <laughs> I get about two months off kind of February March time and then it's like right what are we doing this Christmas but we kind of start properly kind of September time we've got a big custom database that volunteers sign up that does all the kind of recruitment and scheduling on it volunteers start signing up kind of October time and then all the way through I mean it's just yeah it's just this big spreadsheets and planners and who's doing what when then so yeah so once we get the volunteers started the first shifts are getting in touch with our members so we have about 400 active members in Edinburgh which are all people at various stages and situations of homelessness our volunteers will do two shifts a day over um kind of November early December getting in touch with every single person that we can and just saying to them what are you doing for Christmas are you by yourself would you like a meal would you like a phone call are there any kind of essentials toiletries clothing that you need would you like a Christmas gift box with some lovely like candles and books and things like that in it so the volunteers basically do a big it's kind of like we call it a survey but it's not like a mori poll you know they have a bit of a chat and they just kind of have to get the answers to all their questions and then from that we make lists of who wants what and then we have a team of volunteers that do the kind of packing of gifts and things and then we have the kitchen team um, with our lovely Ewan that do so there's a few days prep before Christmas then we have our kind of relatively small kitchen team um, down at Sydney Ian's Kitchen they do all the cooking then we've got a little team that do all the packing and then we have a team of about 15 drivers that kind of take that out hot to people kind of delivery style um which yeah it's quite a lot of effort and there, we did have a bit of talk about do we really need to deliver hot food but actually i think there are quite a lot of services that have been providing food to people especially during the pandemic a lot of people have been getting sort of meals on wheels type here's food to heat up at a later date um but nobody else was really doing hot food and some of the people that we spoke to had said I'm in temporary accommodation. There's only like an hour a day when I can use a microwave. I've been having these, I've been having really nutritious food from these organisations, but I've, I don't remember the last time I had a hot meal. And just that kind of having a hot meal is really important to people, especially at Christmas. And I think as a society, food is such a, it's like a way that we show kind of care and love and community to people. So us being able to give that to members that are maybe feeling a bit kind of out of the loop and isolated and not really part of kind of the community, for us to be like, ta-da, Christmas dinner. Um, I think it's really important to people. It makes people feel special. Yeah, especially after the last wee while and the way things are going with the universal credit cut and things, you must feel good, you know, this is something you can do to help. And I can imagine the situation might get 
a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're we're not in too bad a situation in terms of, I mean, people always think of homelessness as being rough sleeping, which in terms of rough sleeping, because of the kind of hotels that they brought in because of COVID and things like that, there are very few people at the moment rough sleeping in Edinburgh, but there are vast numbers of people in like really unsuitable temporary accommodation, bed and breakfasts, things like that, which, you know, to people that don't know about homelessness, a bed and breakfast might sound like, oh, but that's a holiday at the seaside. But actually, it tends to be quite rundown accommodation that the council kind of buy in chunks. Um, people are kind of stuck in one room, quite often can't have visitors. Um, it can be really quite a grim place for people to be and people can be there at the moment for you know 18 months two years quite easily so for us to be able to kind of you know do something nice for them just for a couple of days is because we're able to do that it's really lovely to do just we have the manpower um, the manpower of the volunteers or else we just you know wouldn't be able to provide that to people but I mean we do support people all year I think it's just acknowledging that Christmas is a particularly difficult time for people and just not feeling isolated on that day and just having a wee bit of kind of something to look forward to and we found last year I mean the calls that we brought in pre-Christmas were really just practical it was we need to know what people want to be able to provide them with something but actually so many members said that was really nice that it kind of put Christmas on my radar gave me something to look forward to and um, rather than going like oh here it comes it was like oh good yeah I've spoken to this nice person and someone else will phone me in a couple of weeks and then I'll get my, my Christmas delivery it's just kind of hope I think for people and if so we've talked about how people can help if you know someone or you are someone who needs that help how do you get in touch with crisis is it just a helpline or all of our contact information is on our website it's really easy to find that if you just go to crisis then scotland then get help it's got all of our information people can self-refer we do get a lot of referrals via other organizations but people can self-refer and um, we've got a duty service during the day that people can get approached to speak to quite quickly um, and go through their situation and either it may be ourselves or it may be that one of our partner organizations that we work quite closely with is a better person to you know a better organization to help that particular person but yeah if they get in touch with us we'll always make sure that they get the right person to speak to Ewan, you are a chef in the Volunteers for Crisis. So how did all that come about? I have been a chef for 24 years and I was started working for an event catering company and the head chef at that time was volunteering for Crisis. So she said, oh, would you like to help? So I was like, yeah, I will. She then left the company and I took over the, the role and I've been there ever since. <laughs> so what does the lead up to Christmas look like for you in terms of this volunteering? It used to be quite chaotic we never used to be able to guarantee what food we would get. But because we've been working with the same suppliers for the last five years, we know every year we need this much turkey, this much potatoes, and literally get an email with a list and they send it to us. That's good. So actually it's really quite... Not straightforward, but it is much more streamlined now than it used to be. Before it always used to be a bit like ready, steady, cook. You'd wait and see what you'd get and then, we've got turkey. No, well, let's just cook this then. <laughs> Whereas this is it. Now we actually, and because now obviously we're doing a delivery service, we have to be much more organised. And is it so, is that like traditional turkey dinner? Is yeah. that what's on offer? Yeah, and then we do steak pack on Boxing Day and vegetarian options. How does it make you feel? Are you quite, does it quite fulfilling that you're involved in this? Absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, I've worked for lots of big corporate companies and it makes you feel that they don't really care. They're just there for a, their Christmas party and it's all like someone's paying for it and, and then to actually see people genuinely say thank you for feeding them is such a huge thing for me. Obviously the same as Jenny, you'll be working on Christmas Day, but what, yeah. once you're not, like, traditional turkey you have or...? No. <laughs> we all hate turkey in our house. <laughs> I'll just be with my family. But we'll just, we'll probably end up doing something really crazy, like have curry or something. <laughs> So over Christmas you're feeding about 300 plus members, so what, what's the logistics like for that? We basically probably start three days out from the Christmas day, we'll just work our way through a prep list. 
make the puddings, get the turkey cooked. So everyone will be ready to go on Christmas Eve. And then on Christmas Day we go in and just reheat everything and pack it and send it out. So actually, you know, in terms of logistics, it's actually quite straightforward for us. Everyone knows what to get through. People take different trolls, work their way through the list. All about good preparation. Yeah, it's all, everything's done in advance. Yeah. The only problem is if, if you don't have something. But generally, this, you know, we always make sure. My, my job really is to almost make sure that everything's there. You know, I don't need to peel potatoes, but I will do. But it's more of make, make sure the potatoes are in the building. <laughs> Whereabouts does the food come from? Yeah, so we are so lucky. We used to kind of just get things piecemeal from whatever, but actually Ewan really helped us to kind of build relationships with some really great suppliers. So the last kind of five years or so, Mark Murphy's, Campbell's The Butcher, Graham's Family Dairy, Fantasy Fruit and Veg, and Vegweed as well um, have all been like really big supporters. We basically just send them a list of this is what we're doing, this is what we need, and they're just like, yeah, yep. absolutely. And some volunteers this year were saying like, oh, you hear all these things about like turkey crises and are people going to get turkeys this year? And we were a bit like, oh, when we ask for it. And they were just like, nope, absolutely, we're here for you. Um, which is really lovely. It's really good to have that support and to know that that's not something we're going to have to worry about. It's just amazing. So after all the, the Christmas work that you're doing, uh-huh. what is it that you're doing at Christmas? And- <laughs> <laughs> I'm working at Christmas, obviously. So it's a bit of a running joke that when we used to do the centre model, I'd be working for like, you know, 14 hours running about and just forget to eat actually at Christmas Day. And the number of times Ewan would be like, but give Jenny a soup. <laughs> Here's a soup and a cup, make Jenny eat it on her way past. Um, but we just, in our house, we just postpone Christmas for a few days and then when I get a day off we do the whole turkey dinner roast potatoes but it's just me my husband and the dog so it's not we're not disappointing any kiddies by not doing kind of real Christmas so yeah we just do kind of virtual Christmas a few days later kind of fake fake Christmas we do. <laughs> so before Covid people would come in for their Christmas dinner and now you're doing hot food delivery so do you have a preference at all? Well I much prefer them coming in face to face that was the nice thing about the day that you see people coming in get their food and sit down and look happy eating so that's now we don't have that. I'm much happy having people in. Do you think it'll come back to that eventually? I hope so. I hope, I, mean, I really hope it'll have to come back some form of, you use the word normality in inverted commas, but I think it's really important because it gives people a sense of somewhere to go. You'd see, I'd come up on the bus and people standing up saying, waiting to get in before we'd even open. So it became like, there's a real need for this. People are hungry, it's cold. So we started doing breakfast just off the, off the hoof to get people in the door even if we weren't really ready, because it actually gives someone a bacon roll. It's taken away that edge straight away. Mm. And we worry about Christmas later, the Christmas turkey would happen later. But these people were in the centre and warm. And talking to each other as well. Yeah. People were talking to them and I'd go out and just walk around the room and just chat to people. Yeah, I really miss that actually. Yeah. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you and good, good luck with Christmas. Thank you so much. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. <laughs> Bruce Jack produces wine from all over the world, but his home and his heart is in South Africa. I spoke to him about how they're working to make winemaking more sustainable and what we should look for when shopping for a bottle or two. You may also hear from his dog Jägermeister, who was hiding under the table as we spoke. Today I'm joined by Bruce Jack to talk about sustainable wines that you can choose for your Christmas dinner. So, hi Bruce. Hi Rosalind, nice to be with you. 
Thank you very much for having me. Nice to see you. Could you just tell me a little bit about your business and uh, what it is that you do? Bruce Jack Wines is a, a wine business. We make wine mostly from South Africa. I am South African of Scottish descent and uh, hence my name. But we also make wine in Chile. We make wine in Spain. We make wine in Australia. We make wine in California. So we've got projects on a global basis. But the vast majority of those wines uh, come out of South Africa and as a result, I think we're very focused on sustainability. I mean, obviously, everyone's talking about Glasgow, COP26, the race to resilience, the race to zero, and all these things that we should be doing. My eldest son, who's quite an interesting character called Robert, was at the table last night. He said, oh, I'm going on this podcast called Scran and talking to this remarkable Scottish journalist called Rosalind. And I, what am I going to say about sustainability and climate change? And he said, well, Dad, I've decided that people haven't caused climate change. Corporations have. And I think what Bruce Jack stands for is the antithesis of a corporation. So what we're really trying to do is be a winemaker-led, really family business, but on a global scale. Is that possible to pull off? I'm not sure. Is it possible to be sustainable? Yes, I believe it is. And I think it's it's easier to do it as a family uh, concern and as a concern that actually farms because we are ensconced and part of what we're doing with nature. And it makes it easier for us to come to grips with that because we see climate change every day and over decades. And to be able to react to that is kind of really what I think is part and parcel of what small family-owned wineries are able to do really quite easily. And what is it that makes your wine and your vineyard sustainable in comparison to others? It's a good question because I think, as, as I've sort of tried to allude to, but maybe I need to be a little bit more definitive about it, I think wine producers generally and wine growers in particular are already quite aware of the situation of climate change, much more so than you would be if you lived in a town and during summer put on the aircon and in winter put on the heaters. You're outside every day, you can look at long-term temperature data. So I think the majority of the wine industry, particularly because of the way that we, you know, the, the ultimate craft beverage, right, is the wine industry, we are more aware. And I think most growers are aware, but us in particular, I don't think we do things necessarily better than a lot of other people, but we do things maybe slightly differently. So I've been obsessed with a couple of little things over time. One of them is carbon sequestration. Now, what that means, it's kind of a, a fairly new concept, but it's made sense to me for a long time, is that if you can have permanent crops on your land, you not only have healthier soil, which means that you have healthier plants, but you're also able to take carbon out the way that a plant photosynthesizes it utilizes carbon. And that means that it takes carbon out of the atmosphere and brings it in through the roots into the ground. So this is called carbon sequestration. We have a thing called carbon legacy in our atmosphere, which is, of course, contributing to climate change, but particularly global warming. The thing that we have seen, and it's radical to watch how quickly this happens, that you know, when the Great Plains of America have plowed their lands and got rid of any of the cover crops, we actually see a rise in temperature in the Northern Hemisphere. What we're seeing with Amazon rainforests, similarly, this deforestation and this, and this taking away. So carbon sequestration is possible in vineyards because not only do you have all this lush green growth during summer, where you're taking carbon out of the atmosphere and bringing it into the roots and therefore into the soil. But during winter, you can have cover crops. So we farm in basically organically, but particularly with our cover crops. We've got a lot of cover crops um, you know, during the winter months, which means that throughout the whole year, we never have bare land in the vineyards. 
And if you take into account all the hundreds and thousands of hectares of vineyard land that is around the world, this is a, a potent opportunity for the wine industry con to contribute to addressing climate change issues. That's just one of the things. I mean, I know we've only got a short amount of time uh, and I could really get into a lot of detail with the other cool thing. I'll just talk to you on the other side of things. Once you've made the wine and everything, one of the big, and I'm not sure about this figure is absolutely correct. This is just what I've heard from industry standards, but there, there are on average 380 million tons of shrink wrap used every year to shrink wrap pallets. Now, only a, a small percentage of that is going to be related to the wine industry, but that shrink wrap, no one talks about, and it because the consumer never sees it, right? So you wrap your pallet with it in your winery, you put it on a boat, and you ship it around the world, and when it gets to the supermarket or wherever it's going to, that shrink wrap gets taken off and in some cases recycled, but in a lot of cases that isn't recyclable material. So it goes to landfill. If we can just get that right in the wine industry, what a difference it would make. So we are going to be the first winery in the world that is trialing a biodegradable shrink wrap for our shipping. So it's a holistic view of a business right from what happens in the soil to how that eventual product is enjoyed in the glass. And it's quite exciting because winemaking can be, it was pretty simple to do. Anyone can make wine, you know, you you can make wine in your bath, Rosalind. It's it's pretty simple. Um, but uh, the, the stuff that goes on around wine, everything from trade tariff barriers to, to how you, we think about our impact on the environment is very complex. There's a lot of interwoven pieces that you've got to sort of be juggling a lot of things at the same time. It's really exciting. And this challenge that we have can seem overawing climate change to a lot of people. And I think particularly for other companies that are not involved in as natural a process as winemaking. But for us, we see it as an opportunity as an industry, and particularly as a, as a wine business, Bruce Jack, to be able to really make an impact and to feel good about what we do. When it comes to your wines, what type of wines do you have? And can we get them here in the UK? Yeah, yeah we've... <laughs> So the UK is probably our biggest market in the world. We are all over the place. You can get it from Wine Events Scotland. You can get it from Diana Thompson. But we also are quite well represented in the supermarkets. So we're in Tesco, we're in Sainsbury's, we're in Asda, we're in Co-op. We've got a really cool fair trade brand in Co-op. And we have our own direct-to-consumer website, which is called mindmapwines.com. And our Estate wines, which are sort of the top of the range, those are available actually through a Scottish company called Alliance Wine. So when we're out and about shopping for our wines this Christmas and we're wanting to be sustainable, so we're looking at your wines, what wines would you recommend to go with like a traditional turkey dinner? Well, first of all, I think you've got to make sure that turkey's free range and you've got to know where it's coming from. And I think that's a really important point is more and more as we get involved in, you know, making an impact on the sustainability of our planet, Knowing where things come from and knowing who's producing them becomes more and more important. And investing in that information, I think, is everybody's responsibility, but it should also be fun learning those things. So a traditional turkey dinner. Well, first of all, in South Africa, obviously, it's hot. It's the middle of summer. So we end up putting the turkey on the barbecue, which is kind of tricky, but it, over the years, I've learned how to do it. In Scotland, obviously, it's cold and it's Probably raining, sorry. So you kind of want to start fairly early in the morning, to be honest. I think the idea of starting with a nice glass of gin and blanc while you're opening the prezies at about 10 o'clock in the morning, just get the engine revving. With actual lunch, 
I think this, the sort of thing that goes really well with turkey and particularly with the sauces that are used traditionally in the stuffing, I'm going to go out on a limb here, is probably a pinotage or a pinotage blend. And this is a variety that is sort of indigenous in a way to South Africa. It's not indigenous. It's a crossing made from Pinot Noir and Cinso. It's a variety that goes really well with that kind of, particularly if you've got a cranberry sauce or something like that. COVID's not been great for South African wine. So is there anything that you sort of want to explain to people about why they should be supporting South African wine and what's kind of happened? So yeah, COVID's been really bad for us. We were shut down by the government inexplicably, but you know, we are in Africa and so our challenges are slightly different from a political perspective. I mean, we're fairly resilient, right? Lots of Scots here. So it's difficult to knock us down. I wouldn't necessarily go out and just support South Africa because we've had a hard time. I think there are a lot of other countries around the world that have similarly suffered for all sorts of reasons. I mean, we know France has had really bad vintage. New Zealand has had a particularly couple of bad vintages because of climate change primarily. And those guys need to be supported as well. What I would say is that it's an opportunity to try South African wine. A lot of people don't know South African wine. And it is that the country does produce amazing wines with incredible complexity and at bizarrely brilliant value for money. And and this is the opportunity to go out and buy a South African wine and taste it against something from France at twice the price yourself. And you decide where to put your money in the future. And just don't make wine in your bath because I've got a dog and I don't think that's a good idea. (laughs) Well, I I mean, I think the point I was trying to make is that the grape is kind of designed by the universe to be fermented. There's no doubt about it. And it's pretty straightforward to, you know, just buy a couple of bunches of grapes at your local supermarket, put them in your bath, stomp on them, and a week later you've got wine. It's that simple. I won't go into the chemistry behind it, why it works so well. So I think to get meaning in one's life and to feel fulfilled and rewarded, it's in the bits that happen around wine making that really give you that reward. So it's about social upliftment. It's about making a difference in the fight for sustainable life on earth that kind of thing. And that's really what gets one up in the morning and what's very motivating, as well as, of course, the history and the stories, the people. Oh, my God. I mean, that's the most exciting thing probably is that this industry is full of such nice people. We're just trying to make little bottles of joy. And there are a lot of us in this industry who do it out of passion and not necessarily for the monetary rewards. And, And that just makes for a really cool tribe of people. And the wine industry is, I just feel so privileged every day to be part of it as a result. Thank you very much. And I'll look out for your wines when I'm shopping for my, my Christmas dinner. Thank you very much for the opportunity. My last stop was at Dumfries House. Once the playground of the Marquis of Butte, it faced an uncertain future in 2007, when all of its cultural riches risked being divided up and sold off. Prince Charles stepped in and it's now the headquarters of the Prince's Foundation. There I spoke to hospitality manager Evan Sampson and senior sous chef Kevin Usher about how to make your Christmas day stress-free and fit for a prince. I'm here at Dumfries House with Evan and Kevin. Hi Evan, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. So can you just tell me a little bit about what your job is? I'm the hospitality manager here at Dumfries House. My main role is delivering the weddings and events here at Dumfries House, running the team of about 10 staff, butlers and house stewards who oversee all the events and weddings. The secondary part of my job is the training, the hospitality training here at Dumfries House. And generally throughout the year we take around 50 young people through introductory hospitality training 
Um, and that's that's my role. So we're almost at Christmas time. Is that quite a busy time for you guys here? It is. Dumfries House, I've been here for around seven years and every Christmas you seem to try and one up the year before. So it takes the team about a, a week to decorate the whole house. I think there's around 10 Christmas trees throughout the house. There's mantelpiece decorations dotted all through the house and that's just the, the preparations to get ready. Throughout the month of December, really almost every night, we have an event of sorts and it's such a, a rewarding time of year. Everyone's happy, everyone's getting together and it's, it's wonderful to see the house come to life at night under the Christmas lights. So what would be your main sort of top tips for people for their Christmas table? My biggest thing is preparation. So doing it in advance. All of our events here at Dumfries House, if you fail to prepare, you prepare to fail, that good old saying. And if you can do that the day before, if you can do it a few days before, that takes the pressure off you on the day and you can properly host your guests. So in the days leading up, I would always say polish your cutlery. It's one of my pet hates when I sit down to a dinner table is to look and see a fingerprint on a piece of cutlery. The same with the glassware. Very simple things are really effective when you sit down to your table. We're lucky at Dumfries House, we have lots of different things at our disposal to make the tables look fantastic but be creative and use what you have around the house the simplest things can go a long way so uh, Christmas decorations baubles anything like that can really bring your table to life What are you doing on Christmas Day? Are you working or are you off? We're off and we're very lucky here at Dumfries House that we don't work on Christmas Day Previously I have worked Christmas Day which I, I did really enjoy but uh, it's good to be able to host your family at Christmas and hopefully use the skills I learned here to have them a good day at home. So there's no fingerprints on your cutlery? Definitely not. Definitely not. <laughs> Apart from if the kids get to it. Maybe the kids get to it first, but no, absolutely. And are you having like a traditional Christmas dinner or do you do something a bit different? We try to change it kind of year to year. I feel turkey can get a little bit boring. I quite like to experiment, maybe to the detriment of the food sometimes, but we do like to give it a change. So even going into gammons, to beef, even to maybe a goose. I've not cooked goose yet, but I would love to try it. I think just giving a spectacle at the table is what we're looking for. Uh, now we're going to Kevin, not to be confused with Evan. <laughs> uh, so what's your role here? I'm Kevin Usher. I'm the senior sous chef here at Dumfries House. We're based down at the Woodlands Restaurant and we also have a lot to do with the get into hospitality. We do all kinds of events from weddings, private dinners, education, and we get involved with the field to fork thing as well. And again, we'll be busy right throughout December for Christmas dinners. So is that mainly what you're doing then is Christmas dinners? Mostly Christmas dinners through December, yeah. We'll have the, the education things going on in the background, but also the main focus is on the banquets. And what would your top tips be for somebody cooking Christmas dinner this Christmas? Similar to Evans, really, be prepared. I have a horror story of my mum getting up at five o'clock on Christmas morning and I put a giant turkey in the oven. There's no need for that whatsoever. Get all your vegetables and your potatoes and everything prepped and even cooked the day or two beforehand. You can do the same with your, your turkey. You can have it cooked, cooled in your fridge, sliced and then trade up for serving. That just takes a lot of pressure off usually one or two persons in the household on the day and you can enjoy more time with the family. What are you doing for Christmas? Well, we're having a bit of a different Christmas this year. My in-laws are having all the family round, but instead of a traditional sit-down meal, everyone's bringing a little something and we're all just going to stick it out on the table and have a relaxed Christmas day. So there's no cooking for you then? I'll definitely be cooking on Christmas day because I can't help myself. I'll be going in bells and whistles but they'll all bring maybe a turkey sandwich or something like that. Do you have a favourite dish at Christmas or do you kind of get a bit sick of it by the end? Again we change every year. We go from rib roasts to goose to beef fillet duck we've had. I tend to stay away from turkey because I'm tasting it all the way through December. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. 
Join us on our next Christmas episode when we'll have lots more recommendations and advice for the festive entertaining season, including chats with Tony Singh about how to use up those great leftovers. And Daryl Haldane will give us advice on the perfect seasonal cocktails for you and your guests to enjoy. Scran is a laudable podcast that's co-produced and hosted by me, Rosalind Erskine, and co-produced, edited and mixed by Kelly Crichton.